Hello, Brain Allies. You're listening to Brains Out Loud, where we talk about important topics surrounding mental health, from our work life to our personal life and everywhere in between. Our goal is that through these conversations, we can help break the stigma surrounding mental health and encourage our listeners to prioritize mental health on equivalent level to physical health. Today, we are here with Robbie Teasdale, a ceramic studio artist and volunteer firefighter who lives with his wife and two rescue dogs in Richmond, Kentucky. Robbie is a 2021 South Arts Emerging Traditional Artist Grant recipient. He makes traditional wheel thrown pottery as well as sculptural forms that explore his experience with bipolar disorder. Robbie, thank you so much for being here with us today. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation because you have had such an interesting life and you're such a resilient person. So I'm honored to have you on today. So you grew up in Kenya and lived there until you were 18. What was it like growing up there? That I get that question all the time and I still don't know how to answer it that well. It, it's just so such a completely different life. Uh, I grew up having a lot of responsibility as a kid. And also, I feel like you grow up fast because you see a lot of hard things. Uh, things that uh, in America are cleaned up really fast, like death. And uh, a lot of our suffering is, is out of sight. And where I grew up, it, you see it every day. So um, it was exciting. It was fun. Uh, I wouldn't trade my childhood for another one. Okay. So that sounds challenging though. How did experiencing those unusual circumstances, or I guess unusual to American society, seeing death right in front of you, seeing suffering in a more present form, how did that impact your mental health and well-being? Well, for me, growing up, that was seeing that stuff was all I knew. It was just, it was just normal, and my family was there to to help the community, and we did what we could. I was involved in helping my community too, um, but I do have a, a sensitive heart, you know, and uh, it definitely had an effect on me, for sure. And one of the reasons I invited you to come on today was because you have a really inspiring mental health journey and your willingness to share it with our listeners. So can you take me back to where your mental health journey began and how it kind of started to evolve over time? Yeah, so the onset of my bipolar disorder uh, happened immediately following finding my sister who had just taken her life and within a week I was in full-blown mania and I had just gotten married as well we were going on our honeymoon trip to Norway and during that time in, in Norway I was I was completely manic and I ran away I actually left the place where we were staying and ran 10 miles in the middle of the night to another city um, I, I had to severe paranoia that people were after me and 
it was, it was really tough. And then it wasn't until we got back to the States and we got back to Berea College where we had just uh, begun our undergrad that the pendulum swung the other way down into severe depression. And uh, it was actually holding a loaded gun to my head and with the finger on the trigger. Uh, and, and I just had just experienced the loss of my sister. My family had just experienced the loss of my sister. And what really got me to get help was just not wanting to put everybody through that same thing again. It was just, is so awful that I, I was just like, I, I have to figure this out and I, I can't kill myself. So I, I put the gun away and I went to the emergency room and I said, no, I'm, I'm gonna kill myself if you let me out of here. <laughs> so of course they locked me down. <laughs> right. uh, so that, that, was, that was the beginning of, of, my, uh, of my real mental health journey. That's an extremely brave thing to do, to take yourself to the hospital and to be so vulnerable about the place that you're in. For our listeners who can't relate to that experience, how would you describe the feeling of being suicidal? It's a mood that never goes away. So you have the pain like two or three thoughts, at least I do. I can only tell, tell how I felt about it, but I would get into this loop pattern of just feeling like nothing is gonna change. I have to get out of here. I have to kill myself. And then the third thought that I would repeatedly go through is just how I was gonna kill myself. And I would, I would picture it in my mind and, and we're just living over and over and over. It's, it's, it's just awful. And I have so much empathy when people uh, uh, tell me, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad place and I'm, I'm talking about suicide because it, it is, you just get stuck there and you, and you don't think anything's ever going to be different. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible place to be. Um, I've definitely found myself there as well in the deep depths of my depression. And it really feels like there's no other way out. It feels like there's no other solution. So to be as resilient as you have been to get help, it's so much more challenging than anyone could possibly imagine when you're in that state. It's, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. It's hard to take a shower. It's hard to think any organic thoughts um, outside of, you know, the depths of the darkness that you're in. Who did you have to lean on during that time? Was your wife supportive during that time? And did you rely on her or how was your family involved? What did your relationships look like when you were going through that? Yeah, tremendous support from my family uh, and from my wife. And I, I put them all through so much. Uh, and just the fact that they're still around for me is uh, is powerful, and it it's taken me some period of stability to uh, to contemplate that and, and realize that just how much I put them through. Because when you're unwell, when you're depressed, so much of my thinking was just revolved around me and, and my problems and what I was going through. 
and, and no, no concern whatsoever what everybody else around me who loved me and was experiencing the effects of this with me was going through. Uh, so they, they've definitely been there for me. And, and my wife told me, because uh, not too long ago I was talking to her and I said, I, I, really, I really don't know how I got out of that. That time we were just talking about when I was the first depression, when I was very close to killing myself. And she said that she came back from class every day back to our apartment and she was afraid to open the door because she thought I would be dead. So that's how bad it was. <laughs> so, right. It, yeah, it's hard because you're in such a dark place and you're focusing on your way out and the solution for yourself. And then at the same time, you're contemplating how your decision is gonna impact the people that are the closest to you and that you love the most. So I always give so much props to the families and the friends of, of people who are experiencing suicidal ideation who are suicidal and actively attempting or contemplating. Um, I'm just really thankful for the people that were able to help me, you know, come out of the dark place that I was in when I was in, you know, the depths of my depression, because it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of worrying and it's a lot of concern that surrounds you. And as a person who's actively suicidal, that's kind of hard to focus on. It's kind of hard to focus on everyone else because you're kind of just you're, at least in my experience, I was trying to be sensitive of others, but I was also so self-involved because I was just not sure how I could focus on anybody else when I needed to escape the place that I was in. Yeah. So you got to a point in your life where you struggled with multiple overdoses were those overdoses involuntary? Were they intentional? And what was going through your mind before you ended up in those situations? Uh, well, they were they were all prescribed medications. Uh, the first time I did it, uh, it was actually Ambien. I, I was having terrible insomnia, and I, I took the entire month's prescription uh, of Ambien. So. You know, 30 pills, I don't know, it was a lot. And uh, the scary part about it was my wife was actually away on a trip, so I was alone. And uh, I just had the thought of, uh, if I die, whatever. It was kind of like a half-hearted suicide attempt. Like, maybe I won't die, but hopefully I will kind of thing. <laughs> And so immediately after I took all the pills, I had a moment of like, uh -oh, what, what have I done? And so I called a friend who I knew has had experience with this type of thing. And he immediately came to the apartment and sat with me and was just kind of monitoring. And uh, really, he should have taken me to the hospital. <laughs> but, um, but I, uh, I ended up surviving. I threw up a lot, passed out a few times. And then um, the other overdoses was trying to 
feel something. Like I just felt so emotionally numb that I just wanted to feel something else. And I took a, took a bunch of antidepressants and uh, ended up being hospitalized. Uh, the, the cops showed up and they were like, you're not in trouble, but we need to get you safely to the hospital. And then I was in ICU for a while. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would say they were just kind of weak suicide attempts. You know, I know how to die if I was seriously wanted to die, but I was also very okay with the fact that if I die, that's, that's fine. Did you feel like part of it was a cry for help at all? Or do you feel like it was really just being indifferent in terms of where you stood in life? I don't, I, I've heard that a lot. People have, you know, do that for a cry for help. It, it didn't feel like that's where it was coming from for me. Um, because everybody in my life knew it was serious. Yeah, we, we had just lost my sister, Julie. So there was no, like, is Robbie really in a bad place? They, everybody knew. And I do want to say, I just saw a TikTok video uh, either this morning or last night. And uh, dude said, allow yourself five minutes of negativity and then move on. So five minutes to cry, be angry, yell, whatever. And then just, you know, try to let it go. And so wow. I'm excited for this conversation to move into like ice baths and uh, yes. happier, happier stuff. I feel like it's been very dark so far. I know. And I appreciate you being so vulnerable and, and honest yeah. and sharing those experiences. But again, one of the reasons I brought you on is because you're so resilient and I would love to hear about when did your recovery start and when did you start utilizing self-help and the ice baths that you do? Can you tell our audience a little bit about some of your coping strategies and, and where that began? Well, Julia, I don't, I don't feel resilient at all. Let me just say that first. I feel very, uh, sometimes, especially when I talk about this, Things with people, I don't feel resilient or strong at all. I feel very weak and kind of walking a tightrope. But oof, recovery, what, when did it begin? That's, that was the main question you just asked. Yeah. I would say it, it began when I became consciously interested in, in getting better. So being, being curious about my health and being curious about ways that would help me get better and then learning that there are other ways besides just taking the prescribed medications that, that can help with my stability. So I've, I've tried things that didn't work that I, that I researched and found and they didn't work for me. Maybe they worked for somebody else. And when I discovered ice bathing, it was such an immediate 
switch and just dramatically changed my mood and my sleep. And I just, I just felt alive and excited again. And a couple of years ago, I was put on an antipsychotic injectable. So it's a once a month injection. And it was awful for me. Like I, I had no feeling whatsoever and also just very low intelligence. I felt like it really affected my intelligence. I would just sit on the couch all day and consume just trash entertainment, like mindless garbage, stupid stuff. <laughs> and, and I gained 50 pounds in that time too, very short period. Uh, my primary care doctor took my blood work and I was pre-diabetic, uh, super high triglycerides. He put me on cholesterol medications. And I went to my psychiatrist and I said, my goal is to be on as little medication as possible. And this one really isn't working for me. And I need to, need to take her off this one as soon as possible. And I'm lucky to have found a psychiatrist that really listens and, and works with me in, in my interest and, and understands that I know, I know me better than anybody. So if I tell her like, this, this is happening and it's not working for me, she listens and she helps me like, find other solutions. So that was a big part of it. Just realizing that, that medications weren't the only answer and sometimes maybe aren't the best answer for me. Okay. Yeah, medications are definitely a challenge because there's so many out there and each of our bodies are so unique. And so I, you know, I'm on a couple different medications that I'm very grateful for, but it was a long long process of finding the medications that worked for me and it can be a totally a totally painful process so you know it's it's saddening to me or that you don't feel resilient because when you talk about everything that you've been through you know m most likely you know you you have a you know, genetic predisposition to bipolar and to depression and mania. And when your sister passed, this triggered your experience with mental illness, but that was completely out of your control, both the incident and your genetic predisposition. And so when you think about the odds that you were up against to come now to a place where not only have you been in a, a place of recovery, but also that you can come on a podcast and talk about it openly. I mean, that's huge. That's something that, you know, I sit here and I ask you a bunch of questions, but it's funny if the tables were turned, like I question my own ability to be able to get through a podcast and to be able to talk about the, the darkest depths of my history. So I really appreciate what you're sharing and it's okay if you don't feel resilient, but the more you share, the more resilient you seem to me. So I just want you to know that. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to agree with that as well. That's very kind. And have you heard the, uh, the podcast dynamic healing? It's, uh, oh, I haven't. Okay. He's the guy who hosted, well, there's two hosts. One of them is was a spinal surgeon for 32 years focused on like solving pain problems 
And uh, the other one is a professor of uh, like psychological thing and works with, the, works with the hospital uh, dealing with patients. So they're both like pain experts, but they do both mental and physical pain. And what you just said about all the stuff happening that's not in my control at all, they talk about uh, in their episode something about monkey brain. I don't remember exactly the title of the episode, but they said, we we have no control over the, the threats that show up in our life, but we, we do have some control in how we show up to those threats and how we respond to those threats and the, the physiology of the threat response and nervous system that's hyperactive, kind of in flight and flight all the time is what causes these imbalances and these disorders a lot of the time yeah and I think that it's a learning process like there's in my experience it was a huge learning curve when I started to really experience mental illness and really start having severe symptoms and it took me so long to recognize the combination of things that I needed to do to keep myself in a healthy state of well-being. And so, yes, there are ways that we can control the way that we respond to certain triggers, to certain incidents, and and thank goodness that we have that ability. Um, But the reality is it it takes a lot of time, time to get there. So I'm always telling people when they're feeling stuck, when they're feeling behind, where they're feeling like I'm never going to get out of this, like, there is going to be a recovery point, but you have to put in so much work to get there. And that's not something that you can ever pretend is not the case. Yeah, it is. It takes work for sure. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. So you are an amazing artist and you have made some beautiful pottery that I've seen on and sculptures that I've seen on your TikTok, which you have a, a pretty great following. People love your TikTok content. Um, how has art played a role in your recovery? Oh, huge. It's, I mean, all the pain and trauma is the reason I'm an artist. It's the reason I think most artists are artists. You know, it's, it's what we, it's not what we choose to do because it's gonna make us super successful and wealthy. It's, we do it because we have to for ourselves, I feel like, at least for me and all the artist friends that I have, they, there's no other way for them. They, they have to be creating. It, it is therapy for sure. How did you get into art and, and sculpture and pottery? I took some pottery classes at boarding school in Kenya and fell in love with the clay. But that was not my original plan. I, I really had strong plans to go into the military and was on a waiting list to go to West Point. They said, if you wait a year, you'll be moved up on the waiting list and you'll probably get in. And I didn't want to wait, so I, I chose the RTC scholarship and started in that program and found myself very unhappy with it, and at least the, uh, the community that I was a part of there for that short time, it just didn't sit right with me. So then I started pursuing other things. I went to school for nursing for a little bit and I was actually in school 
when all this stuff went down with my sister and I kept taking leave of absence after leave of absence, I would get through half a semester. I it would get to the point where you can decide to withdraw or it's going to be on your record, all these failing classes. So then I'd withdraw from the semester. And because the school was super understanding and, and super kind to keep letting me back in, keep trying again. And really, if, if I could do it over, I would have I would have left college for you know for a few years to get some stability and get my happiness and energy back. But uh, that's not what happened. I kept trying, and I was taking some very hard classes, and it just wasn't working out. But the school, Berea College, has a ceramic apprenticeship program where you work for the school making ceramics, and they sell them, and they do a lot of work-study programs at Berea College. It's free tuition, but you have to have a job somewhere in the school. And so I was, I was, I was involved in the clay even during that time and made some connections with some other ceramic artists and communities outside of the school that I then transitioned into. Okay, that's so yeah. interesting. Well, what a beautiful path to get you where you are. I mean, so many ups and downs and highs and lows, but now you've found something that uh, gives you the opportunity to express yourself and create beauty. And it's also a healing process. And that's really amazing. Um, I want to go, I mentioned your TikTok and you do a lot of uh, sculpture work on there and pottery displays on there. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about the ice baths? So I know that's something that you found, you discovered, but how does it work? And I've seen you in a video go three minutes under a body of water, which freezing cold water, which I don't know how you do. So can you explain like what it does for your body and your mental health and, and why you do it? Yeah, I consider what it does for me. I actually read an article in uh, New York Times this morning, uh, just kind of like poking around at things, trying to educate myself before I came on here. I know that's really silly. It's impossible to do right before, but the, the New York Times article was actually very negative and they said, there is, there is little to no research that this benefits your mental health. There's anecdotal evidence, but it's also can be very dangerous for your heart, this and that. Uh, and then they talk about Wim Hof on there, who's a huge advocate of, of ice plunging and meditative breathing. Uh, he has his own method and everything. So they specifically mention him too. And they, it, the, the conclusion of the article was there needs to be more research into it. And I hear that a lot with a lot of holistic things that have helped me when I look into it, into the science, they say there needs to be more research. But like Russell Brandt uh, said, the, the science follows the money. <laughs> and mm. there's, no, there's no money to be made if we can get well on our own. You know, the, the healthier we are, the less we need. Uh, all the stuff they, they sell towards our health. But I will say, for, for me, I have no doubt that it's helped me because I, I have just horrible, as my psychiatrist said, Robbie was unremitted bipolar for five years, meaning he would just go from periods of serious depression, three to six months at a time, and then not a very long period of stability 
maybe a few weeks to a month, and then he'd be up in mania, and then back down in depression. And I did that for years. And, and during that time, uh, I was just adding it up in my head. I, I took thousands of antidepressants and antipsychotics, thousands in five years, a lot of pills. But I wasn't getting better. And I, I take the mood stabilizer, the mental, which I like because the side effects are very low and it seems to do well for me. I would like to continue tapering down and just seeing how I do it, monitoring it carefully. But what the ice does for me, it's like a complete reset. So if I'm having insomnia for more than a few days, then I'll go get the ice. I'll get in the ice and I'll sleep 10 hours at night through, through the night, which I've had insomnia so bad in the past. It gets so frustrating. I'm sure you've experienced insomnia probably. Oh too. my God. Insomnia yeah. has ruined my <laughs> periods of my life, has really made periods of my life quite challenging. Yeah. yeah. And, and we know that sleep is critical for mental health. There's no doubt any psychiatrist will tell you, you have to, you have to get your sleep. So that's one major way that it's helped in just the mental discipline of getting yourself to get into the ice is really helpful too, just to develop that willpower. This really sucks, but I'm going to get myself to do it because I know it's going to help me. The, all the physiological benefits, I don't know the science of, but I can feel it in my body, feel happier and more energetic after I do it. And the, the pain, the initial shock of getting in only lasts like a minute or two. If you, if you breathe and you don't like tense up and resist it, just breathe and relax and it becomes quite blissful. And uh, they, they claim, people claim that it releases a, a ton of happy chemicals in your brain. Uh, I know it does because I feel it every time I do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it's such a tool for wellness. Like athletes do it to help their bodies recover. And it's also can be a tool to help your mind recover. So I it's fascinating to me that there's not more science behind it. But like you said, you know, science follows money and it just depends on on what people are willing to donate towards and, and research into. And, and so it's very interesting, but that's why we kind of have to give ourselves the opportunity to find what works for us and test and trial and error, because eventually we'll find our thing. Um, for me, it's meditating in the shower. I meditate in the shower every single morning before I start my day, I do affirmations every single morning before I start my day. The weirdest thing, I can't get myself to really meditate anywhere else. Like I have to be in the shower and that's just what it is for me. So it's like trial and error, finding your thing, finding what works for you. But last time we spoke, you shared an amazing story with me about a very special man that you met and how he impacted your life. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, would you be willing to share that story with our listeners? Oh, absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I was with him this past weekend. We went and visited this 
Sculpture Park in Frankfurt, capital of Kentucky. It's called Josephine Sculpture Park. And he had been there before and he posted pictures online. And I said in the comments, I said, I'm, I'm going, this is too cool, I've gotta go. But then I just kind of forgot about it for like a year. And then I saw him recently and he's, he has such a great memory uh, that when I asked him about it, I said, where was that sculpture park that you posted about a while ago? Uh, and he just laughed. He said, you didn't go. He said, you commented on that, that you were going that day or something. And I was like, yeah, I, I never ended up going. And so he was like, well, let's go. Let's go soon. And I said, oh, how about Saturday? He said, all right, let's go. So he, how I met him was during my last full-blown manic episode in 2017 and it, it, it was so bad it, it went into psychotic territory for a long time and I was a danger to myself and others I mean I, I hate even saying that because you sound so it doesn't feel good to label yourself or be labeled that but it's just a fact that I have to accept so I was in the hospital in Lexington and he is a, a crisis intervention teacher for mental health. He teaches the people in the hospital how to respond. And he's also one of the ones that is there to respond to the crisis. So he was charged with watching after me. I was in my own room, but he, was, he would just be sitting there with me all night long, every night. And I, I felt so much better when he was there. I mean, the paranoia was severe and certain people, certain personalities would be super triggering to me, but he was just super calming and just had a great presence. So fast forward uh, four years later, I'm at an art music festival selling my pottery and he comes through my booth, but I didn't, I didn't know who he was. But I told my wife, I said, I really felt like I know that guy. And, and not just that I recognize him, but like, I just felt this hard connection. Like, this is a, a really good dude. And I just felt like I know him from somewhere. It's like when some people talk about like past life relationships, it was like, I was like that sort of thing. Like, man, I feel like we're connected. Anyway, he went through my booth. Uh, I asked for his name, I got his name, because he was, uh, he was organizing an art festival in Lexington the next year, and he said, I want you to come to this festival, and I said, okay, uh, I'll check it out, and so when I got home, I got on Facebook, I got online, I did my uh, Googling around with his name and things, trying to find out where this guy might have crossed paths with him. He came up at the uh, at that hospital as a as a crisis and addiction addiction counselor and crisis intervention teacher, and it immediately clicked. I was like, I know, I know who he is now. So then, uh, so then I went to his uh, his art music festival that he organized. He started a nonprofit called Artruism, which is to support and promote artists and. He's really interested in, in helping artists be successful and, and also just promoting wellness of artists' mental health in general. 
He's just a really sweet guy. Yeah. That's amazing. And didn't you run into someone else at that festival that you had yeah. a connection with as well? No, I had not just one, but two huge connections. He was one of the other featured artists there. And I got to talking to him and he was a Kenyan. And so we got to speak Swahili together, which is our native tongue from back home. And we had a super good time. We were actually in the same area of the festival, just like, just really close to each other. So we hung out in each other's spaces a lot during that weekend. And I got to talking to him and I said, how did you meet, uh, how did you meet Adam? Who's the, the guy from the hospital. And he said, oh, it was a funny story. He said, actually, I was, I was hospitalized there and he was, he was my sitter. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly how I met him first. <laughs> It was, it was crazy. That is just the craziest story. Yeah. I mean, what a powerful universe it is to have yeah. you all together. And and just how how much time had passed between our experiences, like completely different years in the hospital. M many years had passed since I had had, had met him in that state. And what, a, what an incredible guy. He's, he's really good at connecting with people and calming him down. He, he's, he's really good at his job because he de-escalates the, the energy and the, the mania and the psychosis to, to a level where it's safe again without like going hands-on. I've, I've had some just awful, and I would say traumatic experiences with being restrained uh, and he, I talked to him about it. I said, you know, how often have you had to go hands-on with people? And he said, in all of my many years of work doing this job, he said, like twice. He said, there's other people who I work with or I've seen in this do this work that go hands-on all the time. And I encourage them to not be in that line of work because it's, it's just not right. <laughs> you know? Wow. So he has a very yeah. unique, he has a very special perspective to the work yeah. he does and a special approach. And yeah. clearly it's had, it's made a lifelong impact on you and on others. And it's just so crazy that you were able to connect again. So I, I just adore that story. Um, the one last thing I want to ask you about today is that you're a volunteer firefighter and yeah. I have so much respect for volunteer firefighters. My dad's a volunteer firefighter. And I was wondering, how did you get into that? And how long have you been doing it? And also, being a volunteer firefighter, you see a lot of scary and, and could be considered somewhat triggering situations. So how have you navigated your experience as a volunteer firefighter to kind of protect your mental well-being while on the job? That's the, the firefighting is very recent for me. I joined the department in April, so I haven't seen the potentially triggering situations yet. All the calls I've gone to have not been, you know, hard to see <laughs> too much. But I do, I will say, I feel, use that term resilient, I feel 
more resilient to those situations than I ever have in my life because I I know I have tools now. Like you said, it takes a long time to learn what works for you. And there, there's no telling what could happen in my life, whether firefighting or just anywhere along my path that could be severely triggering. And I'm, I'm not naive to think that I'm never gonna be manic again or never gonna be suicidally depressed again. But I do feel like I have a much better chance at surviving it again than I used to. You know? That's amazing. Yeah, once yeah. you have tools, it's amazing what you can endure and accomplish. I think even it just in in my own experiences, situations that prior to them happening, the idea of them happening were like world crashing the worst case scenario that could ever I could ever imagine and then when they actually did happen I was okay like you know whether it be a breakup in a relationship or a situation with work that's upsetting or really difficult I feel that now I have these strategies and these self-care practices that I can utilize And so it just really goes to show how powerful recovery can be in the process and and the learning process of what works and what doesn't for you. So I'm just always encouraging people to try their best to keep going and to to find what works for them. Um, So thank you so much for being here today. This has been amazing. I knew this was going to be such a great episode for our listeners is there anything else that you wanted to share before we end today? One thing, just to just to encourage anybody who's you know in it right now, please hang on. I think the biggest healer for me has just been time. So, like you said, just learning those things that help. And for me, what's Probably the, one of the biggest tools I've developed is just an awareness of how things affect me. So if I'm going up, I know things I can do that kind of taper that energy back down. And when I'm down, seek out and go do those things that bring me back up and, and do them before they get to a place where you lose control to where you don't have that capacity anymore. Because one thing that really doesn't help is telling someone who's really depressed or really manic what they need to do because that's it's just doesn't help in fact when it happens to me it probably has the opposite effect like you just need to take your meds and you'll be better or you just need to go work out and get outside or do this or that that doesn't help at all <laughs> so once you have stability, keep that awareness. Watch out for the ups and downs and try to keep, keep it between the dishes. That's really, really powerful advice. And I appreciate you for sharing that. And where can our listeners continue to 
see your work and you know what what's your tiktok handle do you have an instagram do you have a website how can people find you and continue to follow your journey and your artistic journey oh well, well the true the true secret to to mental health and happiness is to support local artists so seek out your local studio potters and and painters and musicians and show up and support them because we need it uh, it, it, it's a little boost uh, of dopamine and serotonin every time we make a connection with someone or someone loves a piece that we made. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Pax Pottery, P-A-X-P-O-T-T-E-R-Y, just one word, and Breaking Rob with two Bs at the end on TikTok. Amazing. And I also have a Etsy shop, since you asked. Yeah. It's, also Pax, it's also Pax Pottery. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Robbie, for being here today. This is Robbie Teasdale with Brains Out Loud. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Julia.